the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. That music means we are joined by David Drucker, the Beltway Insider of the Dispatch. You can read everything that David writes and link through it at, at on Twitter or X, at David M. Drucker. Good morning, David. I want to start with Pennsylvania Senate because we got some news in there. There's kind of twin stories this week. You've got a piece in the Dispatch. Our mutual friend Selena Zito's got a piece that ran, I think, yesterday or maybe it was today in the Examiner. Dave McCormick is getting in, and to me, the newsworthy part of that story isn't so much that McCormick's getting in. I really kind of hoped he would. But the newsworthy part is that Doug Mastriano, the failed uh, MAGA uh, gubernatorial candidate from this last cycle, has already come out and endorsed McCormick. So it looks like there's some party unifying going on in Pennsylvania. What do you make of this, David? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's a really big deal for Republicans not to have to fight through a nasty primary, especially one that, that pits the populist wing versus the more traditional uh, conservative wing. Uh, Dave McCormick is the candidate that Republicans in Washington wanted, but he's also the candidate Republicans many in Pennsylvania wanted. He's also run before. That makes him more formidable because he's been through the process, and it gives Republicans to field a seasoned candidate against a, a rather seasoned incumbent. Uh, Bob Casey, you know, he might not make the most headlines. He might not be the most interesting guy in the world, but he's won a lot of tough races. And he's got a last name in Pennsylvania. I said he's got a last name in Pennsylvania that he's been trading on. He does, but, you know, he has now been in office since 2006, and so I think he has established himself in his own right. And he is very adept at knowing where he needs to pull votes from um, where Republicans need to be undercut the most. And so what's really good about this is uh, McCormick is now going to be doing this for the second time. Now, in a general election, it'll be his first, but he's the kind of Republican that can win general elections in, in Pennsylvania, at least if you look at his profile and the way he's positioned himself. So Republicans have to be happy about this, and they should be. Oh, he's the best candidate the Republicans could field. Um, if, if In an environment where you've got a chance at picking up a uh, a bunch of seats because of just how many Democrats are, are playing defense this cycle, uh, this, is as, this is as good of an opportunity as the Republicans could possibly hope for in the Keystone State. Uh, let's go to the president's interview with Kristen Welker on Meet the Press, where he talked about I'm going to negotiate the abortion uh, federal legislation because the heartbeat stuff I'm not all for. I think it's uh, the heartbeat laws were terrible. There should be some negotiation of where that limit is. How is that playing in Iowa amongst GOP primary voters? 
Well, look, I think we'll find out. I mean, I think for now the president's fine. I don't think it's impacted his polling numbers much. But as his Republican competitors chip away at him on this issue, it could ultimately have an effect. I mean, one of the things we really don't know yet, Dwayne, because we haven't seen it yet, is for years the issue with abortion in Republican primaries has been who's going to be who's reliable and dependable when it comes to appointing conservative judges that if a challenge to Roe versus Wade were to get before them would vote vote to overturn it. Well, Roe's gone. And we're now in an era where it's about what kind of legislation would you vote for or sign at the federal level to curtail abortion rights? And so we don't yet have something to go on yet in terms of how Republican primary voters look at this and react to this, this kind of debate. And we're, we're going to find out. Of course, the, pre- the former president's doing what he always does. He tells everybody he's going to make them happy. How? Ah, you know. I just will. Don't worry. Trust me. Well, we'll see how that works out. He's running against, you know, one governor who signed a a six week heartbeat bill. He's running against other Republicans who have promised a 15 week federal ban on abortion. And we'll see if the president's uh, bobbing and weaving on what kind of legislation he would push for or accept as president. Again, we'll see if that, you know, has an impact on how Republicans in Iowa vote. We don't know that it'll have any impact, but it might. Couple minutes left with David Drucker of the Dispatch. I want to shift over to the House GOP circus that is dealing with are we going to have a shutdown? Are we not going to have a shutdown? It looks like it's looming again. And David Drucker, I've, I, I read a piece uh, back when he was with the examiner from 10 years ago. It's a really bad deja vu, David Drucker. Yeah, you know, I went and found that last night and I posted it. And, uh, you know, there they go again. Uh, the thing about shutdowns, Dwayne, is the party that instigates them almost, almost, almost never wins them. And we right. saw Republicans do this 10 years ago. They instigated a shutdown to try and uh, force President Obama to defund his signature health care law. Of course, he was never going to do it. Of course, a majority Democratic Senate was never going to go along with it. But they did it anyway. They ended up failing And they ended up uh, missing an opportunity to push incremental conservative reforms through a majority Democratic government. Now, when I say Democratic, Democratic Party run government and Republicans seem on intent on on reprising that mistake. There's no end game here. There's no unity. One of the reasons um, Kevin McCarthy was able to win a debt ceiling fight is there was unity among 218 Republicans. They don't have that here and, and they don't really know what they're doing at this point. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. That's uh, that doesn't bode well. Uh, David Drucker, 
Read everything he writes over at the Dispatch, or you can catch him on Twitter, the site formerly known as Twitter, X, at David M. Drucker. Dwayne Patterson, in for Hugh Hewitt. We'll be back with the political roundup after the top of the hour break. Come right back. Thanks. Hour two of the Hugh Hewitt Show rolls along. Dwayne Patterson, in for Hugh Hewitt. Welcome, everybody. Join this segment by one of our favorite regular weekly guests, Byron York. You see him on Fox News as a contributor. You can read him at the Washington Examiner. He's the chief political correspondent there. Good morning, Byron. How are you? Good morning, Dwayne. Doing well, thank you. Um, so I want to start with a subject I haven't talked about yet. I've been kind of saving for you, which is this mysterious and quirky and odd story about the missing F-35 in North Carolina. You've been kind of following this. What yeah. are your thoughts about this? Kind of catch people up about what we've learned or not learned so far. Well, we had this bizarre news yesterday, yesterday, Monday, that um, that the military had lost an F-35, and they were asking for the public's help in finding it. <laughs> And this had happened in South Carolina. And as it turned out, um, the plane's pilot had ejected. We later learned that the pilot landed on a residential street in North Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. And then all day, and this had happened on Sunday. Okay. So we're finding about, finding out about it on Monday. All day Monday, it's like, Where's the plane? <laughs> Could somebody please call us? And there were lots of jokes uh, about, you know, is there, can you put punch the key fob and maybe the lights will come on in the plane or something? Right. You could it's like find it. losing it in the parking lot, right? Yeah. This yeah. is an $80 million top of the line U.S. fighter jet. So by yesterday evening, we hear that uh, debris has been found in a field, in a farm. Uh, in rural South Carolina, about 80 miles away from uh, where the pilot had um, ejected and landed. So you think to yourself, you know, how did it get there? About, about 80 miles away. Did it just fly straight and crash? Maybe it curled around. Maybe it wandered around before it crashed in this place. Who knows uh, how long it happened? And and we're seeing absolutely no transparency at this point. The military has said there was a, quote, mishap. Well, was there, obviously the plane flew, even if it flew straight, if it flew for, for 80 miles before it crashed uh, after the pilot, without a pilot. So the, the, the Marines, it was a Marine plane. Right. The Marines have now put a two-day stop on all of their aviation. Uh, the purpose of which we can't, we don't really know. They they want to talk about safety. Now, did the pilot make a mistake here? Is there some big problem with the F thirty five, which was a, a long and troubled and incredibly expensive project? What's going on here? And, and also, the idea of ejecting from this rather large jet aircraft over a highly heavily populated area, North Charleston. Uh, South Carolina is a big place. And then, you know, most pilots, you know, would do almost anything to avoid ejecting out of an airplane over a populated area. And by the way, 
the ocean is pretty close. Well, that's what I was going to say. Why, why, why did, can't you at least try to lean it turning east and, and, and eject it over the ocean? Exactly. The ocean, you know, we've, we've heard about Charleston Bay. It's on the it's ocean. It's right there. <laughs> so you could, you know, take a right and you could you could dump the plane in the ocean. So I mean, Captain Solenberger at least found a, he at least found the Hudson. <laughs> yes. There's, there's just a lot of questions. Uh, is this a plane problem? Is this a pilot problem? Uh, what went on? But you got to admit, this is a really strange episode in which the United States military is asking the public for help in finding our F-35. It's not a good look. Uh, also not a good look is another story I think you've been kind of following a little bit, which is uh, the best defense is a good offense if you are the son of the president. Hunter Biden is apparently now suing the IRS. Byron, what is this about? Yeah, well, um, as you know, the um, some of the whistleblowers who came to the two IRS whistleblowers who came uh, to Congress, I mean, they really helped blow this case open. I mean, they really uh, gave us chapter and verse on how the Justice Department interfered with the IRS investigation on Hunter Biden's behalf and frustrated the effort to uh, actually uh, make a case against Hunter Biden for felony tax evasion. So that was a big deal. Uh, and the Hunter Biden kept, people kept saying, his legal team kept saying, this is absolutely illegal. You can't publicize a, a, a person's tax returns. Uh, and the fact is, the IRS, the, the two whistleblowers, kept a, a lot of Hunter Biden tax information confidential. But through the, the committee, the House committee, they did discuss some of this because there are specific laws that allow whistleblowers to discuss this. So the question is, uh, do you believe these were legitimate whistleblowers? And I, I just don't think there's any argument. I mean, they were coming forth. Uh, with information about how United States agencies, in this case the Justice Department, right. uh, was frustrating a possible criminal indictment of a taxpayer because that taxpayer was the president's son or a presidential candidate's son. So, you know, it's a pretty legitimate area for, for, um, for whistleblowers. But Hunter Biden's legal team, they're just throwing everything they can at the wall and see if something uh, will stick because he is in such a worse place today than he was on that morning when he went into court in Delaware and thought he was going to sign and get a, approved a plea agreement that was basically get the sweetheart of all sweetheart deals, right? Yep. Yep. Um, the Washington Post has a piece that you uh, re, uh, tweeted up on X today, or re-X'd on Twitter, or whatever we whatever we say these days. Yeah, re-X just doesn't sound doesn't cut it. Does it, it? It doesn't it doesn't have the same ring to it. Uh, anxiety yeah. ripples through the Democratic Party over Biden. An interesting yeah. piece. Um, there is a growing chorus. It's kind of a or a growing whisper uh, in the in the Beltway. You're you're there. A couple of weeks ago, he was putting his chips on Candidate Casino 90-10. Biden ain't going to be the nominee. 
And you were on that, you were on that same panel and you were like the more conventional approach. Are, are you kind of shifting your position on, I was, on where yeah, you I put was your just chips? The opposite. I was just the opposite. Like 90-10, Biden will be the nominee because, and I'm still there. Um, but you're right. You're seeing lots of, um, pieces about how nervous Democrats are whispering to each other. Biden's too old to be president. Like that's news. Um, so the, the question is, can they blast him out of the uh, Oval Office? And the answer is, it's really, really hard to remove a president of your own party from the ticket from running for re-election. I mean, we've we've seen primary challenges uh, long ago in the past. I mean, Teddy Kennedy tried in 1980 with uh, Jimmy Carter, who was an extremely unpopular president. He couldn't do it. Um, and so it's very, very rare that you have primary challenges. And you got to say, Joe Biden has been very, very effective in keeping Democrats, at least publicly, officially on his side and in stopping any big primary challenge from happening. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is stuck at around 12 percent in the polls. Right. Uh, he does represent people, I think, who just Democrats who just don't want Joe Biden to be their nominee but um is there is there is there a poll out there or a poll spread in a poll that the left would respect is there is there a delineation point where they would pull the they they would pull the um uh lbj letter on the resolute desk option no i see you have to remember all these polls first of all you see a lot of polls that say biden is too old to be president and the ap poll last month was very influential. 77% of Americans, including, I believe, 69% of Democrats, said that Biden is too old for another term. So that's a big deal. And then you see all these polls saying that some large majority uh, want a candidate other than Biden to be the party's nominees. Majority of Democrats want somebody other. But you never see a poll saying majority wants Gavin Newsom to be the nominee other than Joe Biden or Gretchen Whitmer to be the nominee other than Joe Biden. What Biden has has done is that he has managed to keep this inchoate desire for another candidate inchoate. And and no candidate has amassed specific support to challenge. Ten seconds real quick, Byron. Joe Biden's giving a speech to the United Nations General Assembly today. What's the over-under on how many gaff clips that we will pull out of that for tomorrow's show? <laughs> I'll go with three. See, I'm at six or seven, but that's just me. I'm a producer. Byron York of the Washington Examiner. You can read everything Byron writes and follow him on Twitter or X, as we like to call it now, at Byron York. Thanks, everybody. We will be back right after this. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Code Red is the latest in the Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp series. This one authored by Kyle Mills, who's done the last 10, and this is Kyle Mills at his best. The new Mitch Rapp thriller is being hailed by Town Hall as a bullet train to high adventure. The real book spy says Code Red feels ripped straight from next week's headline. I read it in one day. I talked to Kyle Mills about it. If you find my iTunes website, you can listen to that interview, but all you'll hear there is that you should read this book. It's actually the kind of thriller that disturbs anyone who reads it. 
The question is always Mitch Rapp against the bad guys. But the bad guys in this case are both Russia and Syria and cartels. It's quite the read. Go get the number one New York Times bestselling Code Red by Vince Flynn. The Mitch Rapp series authored by Kyle Mills. Available now wherever books are sold. Or go to my book club on my website at hughhewitt.com. That's Code Red. The latest in the Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp series. Code Red. Los Lobos, the great David Hidalgo playing guitar there. He'll be part of the action at the Crossroads Guitar Festival this weekend. I get to see him as well. Welcome back, everybody. Dwayne Patterson in for Hugh. I'm joined on the line by Bethany Mandel. She is the co-founder of Write Books for Kids. You can read everything that Bethany uh, has going over at Bethany Shondark on Twitter or X. Hello, Bethany. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I uh, want to bring something to your attention that you may or may not uh, know about. Okay. Brandon Gillespie at Fox News reporting that the Biden administration has hired a new czar to monitor oh. efforts to remove certain books from school libraries around the country. Um, Let me guess. It's not pornography that they're removing. No, it's not. It's actually making sure that the, the pornography books aren't pulled. For, ah, yes, yes, for, that sounds about right. Yep. Former Obama administration official okay. and nonprofit leader Matt Nosenchuk began work in the role this week as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Office for Civil Rights and will lead training sessions for schools and libraries on book bans. His past work has focused heavily on the LGBTQ community. What do you make yep. of this, Bethany? I mean, that tracks, right? Yep. I, this, this, obsession with ensuring that children have access to graphic material that is so graphic that you're not able to read them or show them at school board meetings, this obsession. Meanwhile, I was looking up these stats yesterday because a friend is like having school issues and thinking about pulling her kid and putting them in public school. So I have these numbers off the top of my head. They're fresh. Um, my local elementary school between nine, there's one that has 9%, one that has 20% of children who are basic, basic fluency in English language arts uh, for their age level in third grade. That's like, I cannot even express to you what basic literacy means according to their metrics. And this is like the bare, bare minimum, 20%, not between nine and 20%, depending on the school, of children in those schools can read. Like, let's focus on making sure that the kids can read the pornographic books before we need to talk about the content of the pornographic books. Yeah, that's, a, that's a fair point. Um, you on uh, on Twitter or X uh, retweeted a post by somebody I don't know, Marianne Jensen, but it's just a it's a yes. little thing that I want to read and then kind of have you pop off on it. Took my 14-year-old to the doctor Friday, Marianne tweets, as if the renewed master raid wasn't bad enough. Halfway through, the doctor asked me to leave. Over my dead body, I said, this is my child, and anything can be discussed with both of us. She then proceeded to ask if there were any questions about gender identity. Nope. I stopped it right there. We cannot continue to fuel this madness. Fight it. Don't let your child fall prey to a manufactured identity crisis. It ends with us 
or it continues to lay claim to more children until the family and our children literally become unrecognizable. Don't fall for the love narrative. This is a political path that only leads to pain and suffering for everyone involved, especially the child. It's yeah, no. pretty powerful. Yeah, no, it's really powerful. And it's happening. I mean, it's happened. It will happen to me at my pediatrician. I've spoken to parents of older children at my pediatrician, and it is going to happen. And that's a bridge that I'm going to have to cross. And a lot of people replied to her, like, find a new pediatrician. Good luck finding a pediatrician who doesn't do this stuff. I was going through photos of, of uh, my, my baby's birth the other day. And one of the pictures I have is the intake form for new patients. And it asks the gender identity on the form male, female, male to female, or female to male. Um, that's, that's the norm in pediatricians' offices around the country. Um, it's going to be hard to find doctors who will not ask these questions. But this is why I co-wrote a book called Stolen Youth with my friend yep. Carol Markowitz. And yep. we, we wrote about this extensively in the book. Parents need to stand up. And one of, one of the commenters, who I actually greatly respect, um, said, you know, your kid isn't going to turn trans because their doctor asked them. Like, no, they're not. That is fair. But we need to send a message in small ways and in large ways to people who care for our children that this is not, we, we will not countenance this stuff with our kids. We have bright lines in our family, and we're, we're not going to sow the seeds of gender confusion at a doctor's appointment where really they're just there to make sure that they are growing up healthy. Yes. Um, all of these conversations about sex and sexuality are conversations that belong in the home, um, not in schools, not in pediatricians' offices. And I think that a lot of American parents have seeded uh, the ground for all of these conversations for way too long to way too many people. And good for Marianne for standing up and saying, no, this is my kid, and that's not an appropriate conversation to have with him. Now, you and Mary Catherine Ham are my conduits to what suburban moms think. Mm-hmm. So Trump's abortion position, as espoused on Meet the Press with Kristen Welker over the weekend, you think that's going to be problematic with, with suburban moms? I, I, I don't. I, honestly, I don't know if suburban moms really are voting on that issue. We're voting on the fact that like it cost me $300 to feed my family for half a week. Good point. Good point. Bethany Mandel. You can read her at Bethany Shondark. You can go to Write Books for Kids, the number four, Write Books for Kids. Or you should pick up a copy of Stolen Youth and you can get more details of what we were talking about. Dwayne Patterson in for Hugh Hewitt. Hour three is straight ahead. Joined now by my old friend, Arthur Brooks. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, 10 years ago, you may recall, Arthur sat in for me a couple of times as guest host. He was then the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Since then, he's written a couple of great bestsellers, begun a must-read column in The Atlantic on happiness, taken up a professorship at Harvard Business School, and is now the author of this book, which I suspect by today is the number one selling book in America on Amazon, Build the Life You Want by Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey. Arthur joins me now. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? Good morning, my friend, Hugh. You said I'm your old friend. Do I look old to you? Do I seem old to you? No, no, no. But that's just in terms of it seems like I've been talking to you for a lot longer than 10 years. But it's uh, I've been yeah. listening to you for a lot longer than that. Arthur, yeah, I want to begin with a hook. Too. I want to begin with a hook. We'll get everyone in. How does caffeine work? You explain it in the book, and that's like a hook. Yeah, for sure. Caffeine is a really interesting drug because it doesn't actually pep you up. 
it makes you feel peppy because it's actually blocking the receptors for a molecule that will make you feel lethargic called adenosine. Here's basically how it works. Adenosine is a neuro, as a neurotransmitter floating around your brain. It has certain receptors that fit the molecule. When it goes into those receptors, you feel lethargic. It kind of slows you down. When you wake up in the morning, there's a bunch of these floating around your brain. If you put in caffeine, they're shaped the same way as the adenosine molecules and they go into the adenosine's parking spots. So you can't relax. That's what you're actually doing with caffeine. Now, if you do it too much, you'll feel kind of jittery because you need a little bit of this adenosine, but, but that's how caffeine works. It's sitting in somebody else's parking spot. Now, I began with an anecdote because that is from the book, Build the Life You Want, which is a book about science, molecules, caffeine, and the other part of that science, which is how and why people feel emotions, how they can manage it, and how they can build the life you want. But I want to stress this is, I'm sure some people put it in the self-help section at, at Barnes & Noble right. or Amazon, but it really is a book about the science of the brain, Arthur. How are you trying to do the elevator pitch to people who don't like self-help books, but this isn't a self-help book, even though it will help you? Yeah, the, the, the way that I talk about it is that most self-help books actually don't help you very much. And part of the reason is they don't give you knowledge or action or a way to understand the mechanisms that are going on in the serious business that is your brain. This is a book about how you work. This is the owner's manual for your, for your, for, for your, your emotions, starting with actually how they're produced in the limbic system of your brain. You can't manage yourself unless you understand yourself. You can't actually change your habits unless you know what's going on in your brain. Now, it's not an academic book. I mean, this is written for everybody. My co-author and I wrote the book. We passed chapters back and forth and we said, okay, will everybody who's interested be able to understand this? Yeah. If they want to go deeper into the science, they can go to the back of the book and look at the end notes. Nobody's going to do that. The truth of the matter is, that, however, when you look on the Internet and says, get happier with one weird trick, don't trust it. It never works. You need the science. You need the knowledge. This book is about that. You mentioned your co-author, who is this humble little person by the name of Oprah Winfrey. She genuinely yeah. is humble. But I have said for decades and decades, when Rush was alive, I said the two people in America with the largest sustained audience over 30 years are Rush and Oprah. Now there's only Oprah. I don't think anyone is a better communicator over 30 years than Oprah. So you have to give us the backstory. She explains that she was a fan of yours and a reader of yours. But who reached out to you to say, let's do a book with Oprah? And how did your thinking process go when that happened? It was an extraordinary thing. You know, when you write a column, my column has about, you know, you have a column in the Washington Post and, and, and your, and your, your radio show reaches hundreds of thousands and millions of people every week. You don't know who's actually following Hugh Hewitt. And I don't know who's reading my column in the Atlantic on Thursday mornings, a column called How to Build a Life. Well, it turns out one of them religiously was Oprah Winfrey. She was reading it all the way through the coronavirus epidemic. And I was writing my column for everybody, and I still do. It's not a political column. It's a column about how to live a better life. And, and when my last book came out that you and I talked about on your show as well, it's called, uh, you know, it was, it was called From Strength to Strength. She read that literally on the first day that it came out. She got it on the first day, downloaded it to her iPad, read it on the first day, and called me. And, and she says, hey, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm Batman. Right. I mean, yeah, sure. This is Oprah Winfrey. But it was the voice, man. It was the voice I've been hearing yeah. since I was a young guy. And so the result is that, you know, it was Oprah Winfrey. She had me on her podcast where she talks about books. Extraordinary interviewer. 
she, I mean, like you, she, she is so knowledgeable about the book that she was quoting the book verbatim to me by memory while she was interviewing me about the book. And, wow. and we really hit it off too. I mean, we're different people with different experiences. I mean, I, she didn't run the American Enterprise Institute. She ran mass media over a 25 year period, very different worlds that we come from. But you know what? We both are dedicated to lifting people up and bringing them together through different kinds of ideas. And she likes to actually find scientists who can do this. And so she said, why don't, you know, why don't we do more together? So we got together in California and we had some dinner and we hung out a little bit. And finally we wound up, it was her idea. She said, why don't we, why don't we write a book and I'll, I'll be kind of the host and, and you be the guest and we'll write this thing and we'll get it into the hands of millions of people and lift them up with these particular ideas. In other words, let's take the stuff you teach at Harvard and let's bring it to the whole world and let's do it together. And I said, oh man, yeah. So we got together in her tea house in Montecito, California. And over a three day period, we hammered out a book outline. Then I went away to, you know, looked at the Pacific Ocean myself for, a, you know, about six weeks over last holiday season and passed chapters back and forth. And the result is the book that was just released. And who, I mean, it was great. I mean, it, it she said, Trust me, this is going to be a big deal. I said, I don't know. I mean, hope so. And it built the life you want is a big deal. It's already a big deal. Now, I am routinely recommending people uh, from strength to strength. I think I've recommended from strength to strength at least a hundred times, and I'm not uh, exaggerating because I think it makes a great deal of difference. This is the natural sequence. I would go first with from strength to strength, but I would go get this one when everyone's talking about it. Talk to me a little bit, Arthur, about. Uh, um, your reception at other events. I last saw Arthur, he gave the speech to my 45th college reunion class this past June. And I knew it was going to blow away everyone. And it did blow everyone away, just like your Harvard Business School. Let's unpack why Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey suddenly have a secret sauce that everyone wants to order. What is that? (laughs) Yeah. The whole idea is basically this. There is a lot that people don't understand about their own happiness. They they start with a bunch of misconceptions about happiness that we can dispel. Like anything else, if you, ha- if you start in the wrong place, you're not going to be able to find what you're looking for. And the number one thing that people get wrong about happiness that we talk about in this book is they think it's a feeling. I mean, most people think that they're chasing a feeling, the feeling of happiness, but that's wrong. Happiness has feelings associated with it, like your Thanksgiving dinner has the smell of the turkey associated with it. That is nothing more than evidence of happiness. So we start off with a scientific definition of what happiness is, and then we go into strategies where you can manage your emotions and build a life on on these pillars of happiness. The happiness pillars are basically enjoyment with life, satisfaction in life, and meaning in life. That sounds simple, but it isn't, Hugh, because what we talk about in the book is the fact that people don't get, they get these things wrong as well. But once you understand how each, how your brain is processing each one of these macronutrients of happiness, you're off to the races. You can actually, and, and I'm living proof, man. I mean, I, I, this is me search, not research. You know, over the past five years, since I've been doing, you know, really the bench science on this work and looking, talking to the, you know, the best neuroscientists in this field and writing about it in my column and in my papers, it's changed my life. I mean, I've been a social scientist for decades, but when I, when I focused on this, my life really, really changed. And, and I've seen it with my students and I've seen it with executives and people all over the country. Your diagnostic tool that is included within uh, Build the Life You Want is really one of the more uh, interesting ones I've seen and I believe in. I believe you've tested it. Positive affect and negative affect. I am a cheerleader, as you might be not surprised to learn. 
I was surprised to learn Oprah was a judge. I'm not surprised to learn that you're sort of a poet, but I was surprised to learn that your resting state in a in a state of nature for Arthur Brooks is rather glum and you have to work yeah. at this. Uh, when yeah. did that metacognition about your natural state of being happen to you? It, it happened. Well, I've always kind of known that I was a little bit, a little bit gloomy. I, ca- I come from gloomy stock, you know, parents and grandparents who were kind of gloomy people. And I thought, ah, it's just kind of the way that I am. Maybe there's something wrong. Ah, I was kind of looking for what was wrong. Maybe I could make something better. But it was only as a social scientist when I started to look into the science of emotion was I was I able to understand how these affect profiles work. So what, what you're referring to, Hugh, is a test called the Positive Affect Negative Affect Series, which we present in this book. And this is highly validated by social scientists and neuroscientists for many years. Now, what this shows is that that you need to understand your emotional profile if you're going to start to manage your emotions. Now, you can be one of four types of people. Somebody who intensely experiences positive emotions and intensely experiences negative emotions. That's a high affect person. That's called the mad scientist. I'm a mad scientist. The truth is I'm not a depressive person, but my high level of negative affect it, it makes me feel and kind of the sum of all my feelings, kind of like not as good as I could under the circumstances. What that means is I don't need to get happier. I need to get less unhappy as a result of that. And I've learned how to manage negative affect by understanding this. Now, you're a cheerleader. High positive affect, low negative affect. Everybody wants to be a cheerleader, but there are costs involved in that. To begin with, cheerleaders, they don't like bad news. They're, they're, they tend to be very resistant to threats. Is Betsy? Sorry, is is the is the fetching Mrs. Hewitt a um, a cheerleader too? No, she's not a cheerleader. She's a judge. She's a judge. That's a perfect match. Why? Because if yep. you married a cheerleader, you know what would happen? You would be we resistant just- to bad things can happen, and you'd go bankrupt. You'd spend all the money. That's when cheerleaders marry each other. It's a big problem. Yep. Now, yep. into the other parts of the profiles, then you have. If you have high negative and low positive, these are poets. That sounds bad, but it, I mean, it is uncomfortable, but they tend to be romantic and they tend to be creative. And we actually understand the brain science. And then they're the low affect people, the people who are unflappable, the people who are not excitable. Those are judges. And that's who you need to have around you if you tend to be an excitable person. I need judges around me. Now, my wife is a cheerleader. I'm a mad scientist. So we have to be really careful. It's a combustible. Well, I thought you were a poet because you're a musician from the Pacific Northwest. I was guessing you were a poet. I missed the line in which you identified as a mad scientist. Yeah, I'm a mad scientist and Oprah Winfrey's a judge. And that's a really good working relationship. So I find her enormously reassuring. Her judgment is impeccable and she finds me pretty entertaining. So that's kind of a good combination. Well, it's a great book. This is the end of part one. We're going to be back tomorrow with part two. Go out and get Build the Life You Want. Your book club will love it if you haven't already ordered it for your book club. And tune in tomorrow for part two with Arthur Brooks. Stay tuned. Hillsdale understands the importance of education to the future of our country, and they want you to as well. So they are offering you 10 free print copies of the recent issue of Imprimus, entitled Education as a Battleground, written by Hillsdale College President Larry Arndt. The special issue of Imprimus provides a factual account of the issues in the ongoing battle over education, explains why parents and teachers, not bureaucrats and activists, should guide what our children are learning. Don't miss the opportunity to arm yourself with the facts. Claim your free copies, 10 of them. Education is the battleground, the Imprimus issue you cannot miss by visiting Hugh 
F-O-R-Hillsdale.com. That's Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Act now and join the battle over education for our country's future. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.